thrilled today to be having a conversation with Rob Nadelson. He is, uh, had, had been a constitutional law professor for many years. He is now the senior fellow of constitutional jurisprudence at the Independence Institute. And he really understands all these things about this national popular vote. This is uh, something that is going to be on the ballot uh, in, in Colorado here in 2000. And uh, is it 2019 or 2020? It's 2019, right, John? Uh, right, Rob? I think it's 2020. Oh, is it 2020? Okay. So we're going to be faced with this on our ballot regarding the national popular vote. And uh, Rob, welcome. I think a lot of people don't understand what this is exactly. I think that's right. First, I'm I'm thrilled to be back with uh, back with you, Kim. Um, it's been a, been a little bit of a while. It's great um, to have you back. The national popular vote movement or compact is actually a a campaign for an interstate compact that would change how we elect our president. Currently, as you know, the voters of each state choose presidential electors for that state. Uh, Each state gets as many presidential electors as it has senators and representatives combined. So in Colorado, you've got seven representatives, two senators, nine electoral votes. In Pennsylvania, they have two senators, 18 representatives, 20 electoral votes. And then um, we, we the people, vote in November, and then the following month, the electors we have chosen uh, get together in their respective state capitals, and they choose the president. Now, that form of indirect election has been around ever since the Constitution was established, and it has worked exceedingly well uh, for reasons we can explain later. However, it occasionally about 7% of the time, uh, produces as the president someone who did not get the most popular votes. Sometimes that's because the person who did get the most popular votes was essentially a regional candidate, and the system is set up to discourage regionalism, to make sure that whoever is elected president has natural, national support. So, for example, in 2000, and this has only happened four times, but in 2000, uh, George W. Bush was elected president, even though he had a fraction of a percentage less of the popular vote than Al Gore did. And then in the 2016 election, Donald Trump was chosen president, even though he had about 2% of the popular vote less than Hillary Clinton uh, did. As I mentioned, this doesn't happen very much, and it only ha- and when it does happen, the person who's elected president is extremely close in the popular vote. But it has angered some people, and so they would like to go to a system whereby whoever wins the plurality of the popular votes na- nationally is elected president. And by a plurality, I don't necessarily mean a majority. It could be just the person who gets the most votes. A person could get 35 percent, let's say, in a field of four, and that person would have a plurality and be elected president. And the way the national popular vote people uh, want to do this is they want the states to enter into an interstate compact with each other whereby they would assign their presidential electors not according to the way the people of their state voted, but according to whomever won the uh, plurality of the national popular vote. So if, for example, in the next election, Joe Biden is on the ballot against Donald Trump and Joe Biden won a 
uh, a plurality of the vote, then all of Colorado's electors would go to Joe Biden, even if it turned out that the people of Colorado voted for Trump. So that's the basic structure. And once, once they get enough states to sign on uh, to represent a majority of the Electoral College, because you need a majority of the Electoral College to be elected president, then presumably this compact would come into effect, and however the people of those states voted wouldn't matter, uh, at least not in an immediate sense, their electoral votes, their electors would be assigned to whomever won a plurality nationwide. So the effect, as I mentioned, would be to create a system whereby we would elect the president according to the individual who got the most votes, no matter how small a percentage that was. Well, Rob, it seems to me like this, and I mean, I think there's voter fraud out there. <clears throat> and uh, Los Angeles, Judicial Watch had filed a suit because Los Angeles city and county had more people registered to vote <clears throat> than actually live there. And so in essence, we would be giving our vote, our voice to these big population centers. And I think that that's right for voter fraud. That's an important objection against it. Um, it's not just that the large voting centers can outvote the rest of the country. They, at this point, they can't. It's that the large voting centers represent an opportunity for, as you said, voter fraud and other kinds of voter inflation. Now, let's take California as an example, since you chose Los Angeles. In California, once you adopt national popular vote, that means that California's influence depends on inflating its vote totals as much as possible. Um, and there are various ways of inflating your vote totals. Some of them are perfectly legal. For example, California could pass a law saying that 16-year-olds in that state can vote or 14-year-olds in that state could vote. California could pass a law saying that convicted felons could vote. Perfectly legal. Vermont does it. But I don't think most people want convicted felons to vote. But that would be a, a way in which California could increase its leverage. California could um, register non-citizens. You know, a lot of people don't understand that uh, the control of the voting is mostly at the state level. And states can, theoretically, anyway, enfranchise non-citizens. So they may decide, well, we've got a lot of people living in California who are not citizens. They need to have a, a vo voice in the presidential election. They could enfranchise them. And then the final way they could do that is the illegal way, and that is by voter fraud. Uh, and there are all kinds of ways of perpetuating voter fraud, but one thing you would need is a friendly chief election officer in California, a friendly secretary of state, because what the National Voter Compact says National Popular Vote Compact says is that every secretary of state of every state must accept the certified totals from every other state. So, for example, if the Colorado secretary of state knew there was voter fraud in California, if voter fraud in California had been blazoned across the, the, the in banner headlines across the Washington Post and the New York Times and documented by a thousand different independent investigations, Nevertheless, if the California Secretary of State certified the fraudulent voter totals, we in Colorado and in every other state would be bound by them. So the national popular vote creates this incentive for 
just getting more warm bodies to the elector to the to the polls without regard to whether these folks should be voting or know anything about voting and it also certainly increases the incentive to voter fraud well, it seems like it delegitimizes uh, people's people's vote, and the right to vote is sacred to Americans. Although I I do I think that people, if you are not informed on the issues and you're not informed on the candidates, then either get informed or don't vote, uh, because that I think is a number another way that we influence these elections. Um, before we go into the next segment, though. There are some constitutional issues regarding this national popular vote compact. What are they? Well, there are several, but let's focus on two of them. One is that this is an interstate compact, and the Constitution says that interstate compacts have to be approved by Congress. This has not been approved by Congress. Now, the national popular vote people come back and they say, well, the Supreme Court has punched an exception in that requirement. Uh, in a case uh, called Multi-State Tax Commission versus U.S. Steel, decided back in 1978. And they say that uh, under the exception of the U.S. Supreme Court, the only time you need the approval of Congress is if uh, the federal government is weakened some way by an interstate compact. Uh, and therefore, they say that uh, congressional approval is not um, is not um, necessary. There are at least three different vulnerabilities in their argument. First, it's not at all clear that today's Supreme Court would follow the multi-state tax commission uh, case because it, it, that case goes contrary to the text of the Constitution. And whatever you think about today's Supreme Court, they do tend to be much more respectful of the text of the Constitution than the Supreme Court was back in 1978. Secondly, you can read that case in two separate ways. You can say, well, you need congressional approval only if the compact weakens the federal government. Or you can say that what it means is you need congressional approval if the federal system is changed by the compact. And that is certainly the case here, because one of the purposes of the Electoral College is to preserve the integrity of the states um, and the and the federal system. And this uh, particular compact undermines that. And then finally, and this is a point I think that the national popular vote people have overlooked, is that, in fact, this compact does weaken the federal, the, the federal government. It does weaken Congress because we have a system, which not too many people know about, which says that if you don't get a majority in the Electoral College, there, there's a runoff election in the House of Representatives for president and in the Senate for vice president. And, then, and this particular compact does away with those runoff elections. So I think that they, this really does need congressional approval, and, uh, uh, and I think the national popular vote people are, uh, are deluding themselves to think the contrary. The, the other problem is, and this is a matter that they obviously had not investigated at all, the nature of the power that they are relying upon, the power of the states to choose their how electors are chosen, uh, the power of the states to choose the method for selecting electors. That power is given to the state legislatures by the Constitution, and, and according to a long series of court decisions, it has to be exercised in accordance with certain standards. Uh, specifically, the standards have to reflect what the founders' design was. Attempts to use that power to, let's say, sell 
our electors to the highest bidder or to give the electors to whomever wins the national popular vote, that is contrary to the founders' design and is very unlikely to be held upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court under this line of cases. Again, I, I think it. I think that the um, uh, the national popular vote people never really considered these cases, but. Uh, I think that the probabilities are, if it came before the U.S. Supreme Court, they would find themselves find that compact struck down. Well, I think the national popular vote people actually are not um, considering the Constitution. <clears throat> excuse me, Rob, uh, at all because uh, this is highly unconstitutional. If you want to change the Constitution, you have to go through the amendment process. Well, that's selling them a little short. They, uh, you know, this, this was put together by a very wealthy man named John Coza, and he went out and he hired a bunch of lawyers. And their website has a very lengthy section about various myths, what they call myths about national popular vote. And they have some, some treatment, some legal treatment there. Um, so it's not like they've totally ignored the issue, but uh, Mr. Coase's money did not, in my opinion, buy fully competent advice. Uh, I, I, I just think that they overlooked some things. The, the, there is also an ethical issue beyond the mere constitutional, you know, the, beyond the mere constitutional law issue, and that ethical issue is: Do you try to undermine the founders' design, the system, the way it's supposed to work? by ignoring the constitutional amendment process by getting by by using a technicality even if you can use it to get around the the amendment process i don't think the courts would permit them to do that i don't think it's moral in any case but um uh but it's possible that they could be at by the courts and if um if they, they do get by the courts, there are certain horrific consequences we can talk about later in our discussion. Okay, well, let's go to break. When we come back, you've written a very important piece, more on how the national popular vote would import third world elections to America. So let's go to break. We'll be right back with Rob Nadelson. I'm thrilled to have on the line with me uh, Rob Nadelson. He has uh, been a constitutional law professor for many years. He is the senior fellow of constitutional jurisprudence at the Independence Institute. He is an excellent author. You've written several books, uh, Rob. What's your latest book? My latest book is called The Law of Article 5. It's actually a legal legal treatise, but a lot of uh, lay people are finding it interesting. Article 5 is the part of the Constitution that deals with the amendment process, and there's a lot of uh, decided law there uh, from the courts and from other sources that uh, very few people know about. And so this article, this book collects all of that information. It's available at uh, Amazon.com. You know, and a lot of great constitutional work. And uh, where can people find all of your, you know, and your books, your, your website? Where's the best place to go for that? The best place is probably independenceinstitute.org. The Independence Institute, as many of your listeners know, is Colorado's free market uh, think tank. And um, I work with them extensively. I run their Constitutional Studies Center. So their website is independenceinstitute.org, and then you just click on the Constitution tab, and all my stuff is there. Okay, well, very good. Well, let's talk about this piece that was recently published in the Daily Caller, and it is at uh, on the Independence Institute website. That's independenceinstitute.org. And this is fascinating. Nobody else is talking about this. But you, uh, your piece is titled, More on How National Popular Vote Would Import Third World Elections to America. What are you talking about? 
Well, you're right. I mean, nobody is talking about this. People are talking about the constitutional issues, which we, which we just covered. People are talking about the risk that national popular vote could increase fraud uh, or about the, the difficulty of doing recounts and such. But they haven't actually looked at other countries that adopt this presidential election system. Now, a quick refresher here. What national popular vote would do is it would create in America a system whereby the president is elected by a pure national plurality of the vote. Plurality doesn't mean majority. It simply means whoever gets more votes than anybody else. Well, I asked the natural question, well, are there other countries that use this system where they simply elect a president by uh, a bare plurality? And the answer is uh, there are seven or eight of them. And, and those other countries are Honduras, Mexico, Nicaragua, Panama, uh, the Philippines, Paraguay, um, Venezuela, uh, and uh, Taiwan, but with certain uh, protections that are not in the National Popular Vote Compact. Um, at any rate, the, so the, the question then becomes, well, what is the actual history of how this process works in those countries? And, the, and, and there are a number of answers to that question, but the big one is they commonly elect a president that the vast majority of voters oppose. Now, this is really ironic because much of the spirit in the national popular vote movement right now is because Donald Trump only won 36, 46 percent of the vote as opposed to Hillary Clinton's 48. But, but if you look at the actual countries that have adopted the national popular vote system, you, you can see that Donald Trump's 46 percent looks like a, a landslide by comparison. I'll give you one example. Uh, Panama just held its presidential election earlier this month. It was a brand new results. The president of Panama was elected with 33% of the vote. You can say, how could a guy with 33% of the vote get elected? And the answer is because everybody knows you can get elected by a fairly uh, low plurality, a bunch of candidates throw their hats in the ring. And so you had about four major candidates in, 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 in Panama. And there was and one guy got 33 percent. The runner up got 31 percent. The guy who gets 33 percent becomes the president, even though two thirds of the voters of Panama voted against him. Now, this is not an unusual situation in um, uh, in, in, in national popular vote countries. It, in fact, is a very typical situation. Uh, another good example is Mexico. In the last election in Mexico, the winning candidate did get a small majority. But in two of the last three elections, they elected a president by 36% and 38%. Again, two-thirds of the people voted against the, the winner, but he becomes president anyway. In the Philippines in 1992, there was a fractured election. Fidel Ramos won the presidency with less than 20 Four percent of the vote. Now, if you think that American political life is divided and, and sometimes hateful now, imagine what's going to happen the first time we elect a president that only, say, 30 or 35 percent of the people favor. This is a recipe for, uh, for, for political disaster. 
and nobody's talking about this issue. Well, uh, let me just give you one one more example okay. to show that this is not in any way unusual. The last four elections in Paraguay, which also follows the same system, in all four elections, the person elected was somebody that the majority opposed. By contrast, in our system, the popular vote winner wins about 93 percent of the time, and the popular vote winner generally, the, per the person who wins the uh, presidency, generally gets a clean majority of the vote, not just 30 or 31 percent. Well, in the countries that you have mentioned, uh, the individual doesn't is not prospering very well in many of those countries. No, the countries are turbulent, and I think the electoral re re electoral process is one of the reasons why the why the country is so turbulent. If you've been elected a president, okay. The, the Electoral College was adopted for all kinds of reasons. You may have heard that the Electoral College was adopted because the founders distrusted democracy. That's not really true. The Electoral College was elected because they had to balance about 11 different factors. And one of the factors that they considered was, look, we want a president that even if he's not the most popular guy in a country, at least is very widely popular and has a wide base of support. So Donald Trump, for example, gets, gets the support of 46%. That's a pretty, pretty wide base. Well, when you were elected the president of Panama with 33% of the vote or, 20, or the president of the Philippines with 24% of the vote, you don't have the political base necessary to exercise political leadership. What, what happens almost from the beginning is uh, you've got a lot of people opposing you. Um, there's never a consensus behind your leadership. And so that does certainly feed turbulence. Also, because somebody can be elected with only, say, 30, 31 percent, there is a tremendous incentive for voter fraud. Because voter, you know, in this country under the Electoral College, if you engage in voter fraud and you're successful, the damage is limited to just one state. So, for example, in 2000, we had the, the hanging chads problem, but it was limited to Florida. Could you imagine if we had had national popular vote? We, we'd still be counting hanging chads today. <laughs> That's probably uh, and, true. You know, and, 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 the, uh, and the incentive to, to, to voter fraud nationally would be immense. So this particular system, I, I call it a third world or banana republic system because that's what it is. It, it, it is followed exclusively in third world countries, most of them banana republics, and it results, to, it results in banana republic uh, uh, outcomes. Well, and this is a very important piece, and you can find it at independenceinstitute.org. Uh, we only have about a couple of minutes left, Rob Nadelson, uh, but just a quick question. Uh, we had uh, put a piece up by Jane Cheney on my website and on uh, the email list, uh, which she was addressing the the defects of the national popular vote. And the comments that many people have said is, uh, they quote, make every voter equal. Now, I think you've kind of addressed this with this piece that you've done, but but what would be your, your quick elevator comment to somebody that says, well, we need to make every voter equal? Well, I don't think that a system that encourages voter fraud, a vote suppression, a vote, uh, a vote inflation, uh, has the effect of making every voter equal. I mean, every fraudulent ballot is one that cancels out my vote. <laughs> you said it in less than thirty seconds. Very, very good. So, final thought, Rob Nadelson. 
Final thought is, as you know, there is a proposed referendum to put this up on the ballot, and I think that people should sign the petition to do that, as, as I have. But also, I think it's really important to hold accountable the state legislators who, um, who voted for this ill-conceived and stupid plan without fully vetting it. Uh, they obviously did that in a, in a, in a fit of progress, progressive political passion, and they did not represent the people of Colorado or the people of the United States well in doing that, and that they need to be held accountable at the next election for that. And also the governor needs to be held accountable on this as well because he signed it, correct? You bet. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. It was, it was, you know, given the, given the investigative uh, resources he has, the kind of investigation that he could have done, I mean, all, as I said, all you have to do is look at, look at the election returns of countries that follow the system. His failure to do that is absolutely inexcusable. Well, Rob Nadelson, it is so good to have you back. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Kim.